Uh, we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 9 through 6 through 7. And, and we're not going to be exegeting this text today. We're not going to be uh, working through it, but it's going to be our base, and we're going to start from here and go onward. So Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. This is the word of the Lord. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Will you please pray with me? Dear Lord, we come to you, and Lord, this morning we celebrate the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We recognize him as infinitely worthy, infinitely glorious, and we come down and bow at his feet. Lord, we pray as we study Christ, as we recognize who he is, that we would honor him as Lord, um, that those who do not honor him as Lord and who do not know him here would come to bend the knee, would hear the truth of your word and your spirit would work in their hearts in a way that they would be enlightened and they would understand the depth of their sin, Lord, the glory and holiness of your character, and that they would repent and believe in this glorious gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Alrighty, so we're continuing in our study of theology proper, uh, or systematic theology. And systematic theology is really just what it sounds like. It's that you have a system or, or a way of understanding theological doctrine, that theology is just the study of God. And, and in, within that, there are different categories and distinctions. And so Christology, as Tyler's been pointing out to us, is the study of Christ, His person and work. And so this is the same, the, theology is, is the word theos, which just means God, and logia from the Greek, which just means uh, the study of, or it can be translated as logic. And, and that really ex- explains our faith. Our faith is not just, just a hope or, or a belief that it, it may be true or it, it could be possible, but no, it is logic. It is, it is logical. You take your mind, will, and affections and conformity to the word, and you understand it. So again, we're moving through this study, and we're, we're working through the second person of the Trinity, that is Christ, that we often, sometimes, at least I can forget, or, or not fully understand the Trinity, that, that God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Christ, being the second person of the Trinity, equal in power and authority, has come to us in a unique way, and we're going to study that this morning particularly studying the incarnation, which means that Christ left his throne, humbled himself, came down to us on earth, put on flesh, and was humbled even to death on a cross. And so, again, the incarnation is just that. It's a study of Christ coming, being made in the likeness of men, that we would have a sacrifice through his death and that we would have an example through his life. So we're going to work through, I don't have an outline for you, but if you want to take notes, I'm going to, I'm going to label these points for you. But before we can understand and truly know what it means for Jesus to be man, we have to understand that Jesus is God. Jesus is God, eternal, 
infinite. So that's the first point. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, it says, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And one of the most important things that we have to understand when studying what it means for Jesus to take on flesh is that we need to understand again that Jesus is God, that he created the universe, that he, is all, he has always existed in perfect love and harmony with the Father and the Spirit, equal in authority and power. And now Rob is going to be teaching on the deity of Christ. He's going to be proving that to us from Scripture. So my goal here this morning is not to prove that Jesus is God, but again, it is necessary to understand that Jesus is God. He has full authority, full power with the Father and the Spirit. In John 10, 30, Jesus makes an astonishing statement. He says that I and the Father are one. And to the Jews of his day, this would be blasphemous. This would be absolutely a horrific statement to say that, that a man would say that I am the same, that I am of the same substance and I am of the same authority and power as the Father, that we are one. But only one could make this claim. Only one could truly claim to have equal authority and power and have union with God the Father. And that was Jesus, the God-man. We as a church could never separate the deity of Christ, again, that Him being fully God, we can never separate the deity of Christ from the humanity of Christ, Him being fully or truly man. They're inseparable. If Jesus is anything less than completely God or anything less than completely man, your salvation is worthless. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Anything less on either side and your salvation is null and void. In His divine nature... Christ is able to stand before the throne of the Father, to intercede for His children, to mediate between God and man and intercede for us. In His human nature, Christ's blood's blood spills out of His literal veins and is able to atone for the sins of His people, Him being the perfect, righteous man. He humbled Himself. And being a man, He was able to sympathize with his people, being tempted in every way as we, understanding the toil and pain of a sin-cursed world. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. And if you're here this morning thinking that no one understands you, or that no one can relate to your troubles, Jesus can. Jesus walked this earth. He suffered the toil of a hard day's labor, the sweat on his brow, thirst, hunger. He was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan himself. I don't think we've all been tempted like that, quite like that. Jesus understands. And he came that you might repent and turn from your sin. If you accept him as Lord and Master, you are free of your burdens, and you're free to fellowship with Him in His wondrous light forever. 
If Jesus is not God, then he is just a nice man who is kind to others, and isn't it really sad that he had to die on the cross? But no, Jesus is God. He is God. But this is what other religions teach. I'm sure you learned this this week. Mormons teach that Jesus is the son of Mary and the, God the Father, that they came together and they had Jesus as their son, that he is some sort of demigod, and his brother is actually Satan. That's what Mormons actually teach. They even, they've even retranslated or uh, corrected John 1, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, do you know what it is? He was God, but he, they, 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 they corrected it to say the Word was a God, because they believe that there are a plethora of gods. So in the Mormon understanding, Jesus is a God. He's not able to save you, but he is still able to be worshipped. Um, now down, the Jewish people even believe this. They believe that Jesus was a great prophet and teacher, as well as Islam. They teach the same thing, that Jesus was very, very intelligent, he was very wise, that he was a great teacher and prophet. How can you say that someone was a great teacher and prophet if he taught and prophesied that he was the Messiah, that he was God? That's not consistent. That's not consistent at all. And again, uh, Paul says later in um, 1 Corinthians, I believe, he says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. And so I have to touch back on the resurrection. We were talking about that last two weeks with Tyler. But it is so important because the resurrection is the seal and the proof of the divinity of Christ, that he is God. If he was just a man, he would have stayed dead. He would not have risen from the grave. But he is God. And he descended into the depths of the earth and proclaimed victory. And he led a host of captives in his wake. And he walked the streets and he was seen by thousands of people. Do not ever believe the lie that your faith is a fairy tale, that Jesus doesn't really exist, that he's never existed, he's not a real person. This is a lie. The faith we live, again, is logical. It is intellectual. We have historic fact. We have thousands of eyewitnesses. This is not just a spiritual book. It is historic documented history, which is the same thing as what historic is. Um, this is not just a book, again, full of self-help stories for you. These events really happened, and they were documented by real people. Again, thousands of people witnessed Christ, resurrected, walking around, and then he ascended into the heaven, heavens, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Don't believe the myth that your faith is a fairy tale, that it's, it's just, a, oh, well, that's nice that that helps you, but that's not really for me. No, Jesus was real. He is real. He is God. He was seen by thousands of eyewitnesses, and he is coming again because he said so. And you can take that to the bank every day of the week. The resurrection is the seal of Christ's divine nature. So Jesus is God. Jesus also, he created the universe. Being God, that's the second point. We're going to go to John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot comprehend it. And again, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, we just read, Pastor Chris just went through this. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Jesus is God. He created the universe. From whom are all things, and we exist through him. He is fully equal in power and authority with the Father and Spirit. He spoke and the stars were formed in the account in Genesis. He whispered and the mountains arose from the earth. He ordered the seas to flood and punish the wickedness of men and preserve Noah and his offspring. He was there actively raining fire and brimstone upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus is God. He has always existed and he shall always be glorified forever and forever. To, in order to properly understand the baby in the manger and the significance of him coming to earth, putting on flesh, being laid, made in the likeness of men, we must recognize him for who he truly is. Jesus has always existed. He's always worked in perfect harmony and love with the other members, other persons of the Trinity. In Genesis 1.26, we don't often think about Christ in this context, but Jesus was there. He was actively creating the universe with the Father and the Spirit in perfect harmony. I want to read verse, uh, verse 26. It says, Let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Jesus is not a passive participant. He's not just there. He, he is actively working, making and ordering the universe creating and sustaining all things. These are truths we must come to grips with when we think about what it means for Jesus to humble himself, to become a man, to be born in a lowly estate, to suffer and die for us. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples uh, who, who, they, who they think he is or who people say that he is. So I'll read that account for you. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, and they said some say John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that, that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is early in Jesus' ministry. Most of his disciples aren't really sure of who he is. They, they know he's wise. They know he's a great teacher, and they're following him. And for one moment, the heavens opened up, and, and Peter had this glorious moment where he hit the, the nail on the head, and he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the, chow, the crowd cheered for Peter um, because, again, he's kind of the klutz of the, the gang. But he hit the nail on the head. He was the one that boldly proclaimed that you are the Christ, the Messiah. But what is he really saying? You are God. You are God in flesh. You are the, he understood the Old Testament prophecies. He understood who Christ was, and he's proclaiming Christ's deity. He's affirming the deity of Christ and honoring him as such. So Christ is God. Jesus is the one who was creating the universe. And thirdly, Jesus was born of a virgin. 
conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Third point. In Luke 1, 35, it says, The angel answered and said to her, Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. When considering the topic of Christ's birth, I was reminded of one of my favorite Christmas hymns and the lyrics to it, uh, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. It's one of my favorites. And in, the line, in one of my favorite lines, the author takes great care to outline who Jesus really is. And I'll read that for you. The line goes, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all of our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. I'm sure you won't hear that on Caleb around Christmas. <laughs> it's by Charles Wesley, one of the greatest hymn writers of all time, uh, writing this Christmas hymn for us, and it's beautiful and it's sweet. It really encapsulates who Christ is and his atonement, his work on the cross, really just the gospel message that he is a king. And during Christmas time, again, Jesus is celebrated all across the world in one sense. He's propped up as this cute little baby, he's a helpless baby in, in some straw. But Charles Wesley understood the necessity of Christ's coming and being born of a virgin, that Christ would come and deliver his people from their sins, that he was a man that was born who was already a king, who left the praise, the continual praise of heaven, the seraphim, the angels encircling the throne, praising him. He left that, humbled himself, came and lived a perfect sinless life. Again, being tempted in all ways, living in pain and toil. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was scorned, mocked. Nobody liked Jesus. Nobody worshipped him here. Nobody honored him as Lord. He was hung on a cross and paid the penalty. And he never once complained, never once came and said, that's not just, you don't know who I am. I'm the son of God. It never happened, because he knew why he came. He came to save his people, who were completely rebellious, completely at complete enmity. They were complete enemies of Christ. He came to save them. And why is it important that Jesus was born of a virgin? We hear this all the time in evangelism. You might even have heard it this week at EI. I don't, I don't know, but it's a, it's a, it's a hinge point in the gospel presentation. If you ever talk to Mark Dew, it's, you, have to, you have to touch the virgin birth of Christ. It's completely important to the gospel message. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. Being born of a virgin and conceived by the Holy Spirit is significant because it has to do with something called federal headship. And so we're going to put on our big boy and big girl uh, caps and pants for this. This is some high-level theology here. Um, so federal headship, go home and tell your parents that you learned federal headship in Sunday school. Uh, they'll probably turn their heads and say, why in the world are you learning about federal headship? But it is important. It is kind of complex, but we're going to work through it. Um, so in, we see this really expressed very clearly in Romans 5, 12. And I'm going to tie this back into why it's important to the virgin birth. So hang with me. So we've got to read a good-sized chunk. So if you all turn with me, please, there, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna camp out and Romans 5, starting at verse 12, for a little bit. 
We're going to work our way through it. So starting in verse 12, I know some of you are still turning there. I hear the rustling of pages. Good job, guys, for bringing physical Bibles to church. So it says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Okay, stop. We're going to take a break. Does anyone know who Paul is talking about in this text? Chapel. He's talking about Adam. Okay, so he's talking about Adam. He says, therefore, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Okay, so it's telling us that sin entered the world through the transgression of Adam, and then that brought death and sin, and it spread to all men. Okay, let's jump back in. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness or offense of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So pause. In this portion, I'm going to kind of just piecemeal it for you. In this portion, Paul is explaining that no matter how the degree of sin, that you could sin greatly or you could sin, you could sin as greatly as Adam or you could sin less than Adam, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're still guilty. You're still just as guilty as everyone else. You're still condemned. Because you were born with a sin nature, and God has a holy, just, perfect standard of righteousness. And if you break that, if you compromise that in any way, it doesn't matter how, how much, by how much or by how little, then you are still charged with all of it. You're still guilty. And because the sin of Adam corrupted the whole world, we're all born with a sin nature. Okay, so let's jump back in. It says, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one... The many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. All right, so pat yourselves on the back. That was a long text, and we're going to unpack it here. But really, I wanted, to commu- I wanted to communicate the idea of federal headship to you. Again, that federal headship, as defined by the highly esteemed theological resource Wikipedia, is defined a representation of a group united under a federation or a covenant. So it's federal headship is, is the idea that, that one person represents, he's a representative of an entire group of people, a covenant or, or a federation is what it says. So in our text, we see that when Adam sinned in the garden and disobeyed God, he plunged the world into death and sin and thus he acted as our representative. He represented us. Because before that happened, before he sinned against God, we were not in a state of, of death and sin. The world was, was perfect. They were living in perfect harmony and fellowship with God. And we, as Adam's posterity or his descendants, we don't get to enjoy that fellowship because, in one sense, Adam spoiled it for everybody. So, that's not, we, we would have done the same thing, so don't, don't, don't blame it on Adam in one sense. So the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question 16 says, did all man fall in Adam's first transgression? It's asking a question. And the answer is, the covenant being made with Adam 
not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind, descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell in his first transgression. So we, none of us are off the hook. We all fall, we are all born of the sin nature because of our father Adam, because he represented us in the garden. We are all condemned to eternal hell because we are all born of the sin nature and thus we will sin. And we are not holy. We, are not, we do not uphold God's perfect moral standard. And I'd like to look down at this definition that the Westminster gives us. It says, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind that are descending by ordinary generation. That is a very specific and odd term if you think about it. Ordinary generation. Again, federal headship ties back into the virgin birth because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He did not have an earthly father. He was born of a virgin, Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was not born of ordinary, um, ordinary generation. He was not descended from Adam in that sense, so he is not united with Adam in this federal headship. Again, you hear the expression that Christ is the true and better Adam, that he is the, he is the head of the new covenant. He brings life to his people as he is their representative for all who would trust in him. And so that Christ, not being born by ordinary generation, this is an extremely, extremely important point here. And we make this distinction because if Christ was born of an earthly father and an earthly mother, he's just a man. He's not God. He can't save you. But Christ is fully God, fully man, lived a perfect, righteous, holy life, made a sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing on your behalf to God the Father. The wrath of God for all of your sin poured out on Him. And this is the only way that we are saved. And again, I'd like to take some time real quick to give a quick plug to the confessions, the catechisms, and, and the creeds. Um, they're very, very important, and they're very helpful. I have this little app on my phone. I was talking to Rob about it. It's called the Reformed Companion it has all of the confessions, the catechisms that you, you were taught growing up, uh, and, the, and the creeds on there. You can word search them. It has all the scripture references. And again, these were written by faithful men who committed their lives throughout the, the past to study and explain God's truth clearly and concisely. They carefully searched the scriptures to distill systematic truth for the church. And they did this to guard and protect the flock from heresy and from error, which so, creep, so easily creeps in. So again, I would highly recommend that resource to you. Go to Ron Odell and tell him, Ron, I would love it if you gave me a, a, a copy of a 1689 London Baptist Confession. I think he might keel over with joy. He would love that. He would love nothing more for you to say, I would love a copy of that. He would gladly give it to you. He'd probably sign it for you too. He didn't write it, but uh, anyways, we'll get back to our text here. But in the text, we see that through Christ, we have received the gift of grace, back in Romans 5, and the gift of righteousness. So if you are in Christ, you are represented now by Him. You are covered in His robes of righteousness through the shedding of His blood. And this is why in theology, again, we refer to Christ as the true and better Adam. Like I was saying, that He represents the new covenant. He is the head of the new covenant. And if you are in Him, you are washed by His blood, and you are covered your sins are covered. And while Adam was a man, he was corruptible, frail, prone to sin. Jesus is not. Jesus is steadfast, 
He is holy. He is perfect. His holiness is undefiled. He will not fail you. And he will not fall into sin. He is always perfect and he always will be. Trust in Christ. And again, to tie it back to the birth of Christ, if Christ was not a man, he could never have represented the human race as Adam did as a man. This is why it says in Romans 8, it says, Paul, Paul calls us brethren or brothers of Christ. He says, and we know that God causes all things to work for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those who, who, those who he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the first uh, firstborn among many brethren or brothers. That We are brothers in, in this weird, strange way. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are united in his humanity, that he draws near to us as a sympathizer, as our high priest who goes before the Father and says, my blood has pardoned them. My blood has paid for them. When the accuser, when Satan is before the throne of God saying, look at all they've done. Look at the lust in their heart. Look at the anger. Look at the disobedience of their parents. Look at all this sin. If you have trusted in Christ, Christ is standing before the right hand of the Father saying, I atoned for that sin. My blood is sufficient. That was paid for. And he silences the accuser. And this is how we relate to God, to, to Christ as a man. This is how he relates to us. This sweet connection that we are brothers and sisters, co-heirs with Christ of this glorious inheritance that we have fellowship with God through the man, Jesus Christ. And we should rejoice should rejoice in this. Oh my goodness. If Christ was not completely man, he would not have been able to die for the sin and be our representative. The humanity of Christ is vitally, vitally important. So now we're going to move into a portion which I have just titled, Why Did Jesus Become a Man? Why, why, why was it important? We've touched on a lot of these things, but we're going to go in two points. And the first point of this, Jesus became a man because only a man could make an atonement. Only a man could make an atonement. And so in Leviticus uh, chapter 17, which again, I know it's all of your favorite Bible devotion books, you just are so excited when you get to it in your yearly plan, you get to Leviticus and you just jump for joy. But again, it is a very valuable book. And not that you would find this, this, this great one-liner verse and say, oh, I'm putting that on my, I'm writing that with my finger in the, in the uh, steam of my shower. Probably not. Probably not. But the overall theme of the book of Leviticus is super important because it outlines the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. And what we can learn from the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant is that God is holy, He is just, and He requires payment for sin. That He will not leave the guilty unpunished. That sin must be pardoned. It must be dealt with. And so I would encourage you, as you're reading through tough books like that that are not super interesting in one sense, that you would press in and recognize the overall theme of the book, that you would say, Lord, I recognize that the weight of sin is heavy and that you are good and you are glorious and you are holy. And I thank you for Christ and I, and I re recognize his great work on my behalf, his blood that was shed as these Israelites had to continually shed the blood of animals in one sense, to delay or to stall or to pardon God's impending judgment on them. It didn't cover their sin. It, it, it didn't blot out their sin as far as east is from the west. That is something that we have as a beautiful gift of the new covenant under Christ, that, 
They, again, Christ has paid for the sins of old covenant believers, new covenant believers, but we don't live, as, as Chris was saying tonight, this morning, we, we don't live under the, the weight uh, of the civil law. The, the, the priests of the day were basically just butchers, constantly slaughtering spotless animals. So th- 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 there was never enough. There was never enough bloodshed. There was never mu- enough sacrifice to satisfy the sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. That's why Christ said to come. But in Leviticus 17, as I, you know, I just kind of went on a little tangent, Leviticus 17, verse 11, we learn, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is by the this, for it is the blood by the reason of life that makes an atonement. So he outlines, this is God speaking, Yahweh. He's speaking and saying that the life is in the blood. The sacrifice is in the blood that is spilled. And he's saying that the only way your sins can be pardoned or covered is by the blood of this animal. In our case, by the blood of Christ. This is why the symbolism and this imagery is so important as we read our New Testament Bibles and we read the Old Testament as well when we're looking through that. This is why Jesus, when instituting the Lord's Supper, says, this is my cup of the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. There is no atonement without, without the blood of Christ, and only a man could shed blood and atone for sin. Christ, being the perfect man, was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. And again, back in Romans 5, we see this beautiful but simple gospel presentation in a different part, Romans 5, 6 through 9. It says, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And if you're here this morning and you trust in Christ, this truth should cause you to have great joy. You should weep at the thought of the sacrifice of Christ, that every sin that you commit, it was necessary for Christ to go to Calvary to pay for that. Every sin you commit causes you to think differently about sin when you do it. It's not a a casual thing. Christ had to die for that sin that you committed. And there is no guilt. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is serious. It is weighty. In Romans 6, the next chapter, it starts off by saying, what what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul is explaining to this this group, this group of uh, the Roman church who may be saying that, well, because... Uh, we only get grace because we, we've sinned, so we should just keep on sinning to keep on getting the grace of God. And Paul is smacking his head like, no, that's not it. That's not right. You should weep at the thought of what Christ has done for your sin, the sacrifice he has made on your behalf. When you are utterly rebellious, you are utterly entrenched in your sinful ways. Some of you are still utterly entrenched in your rebellion and sinful ways. And I would ask you, please, Let today be the day that you would turn from that, that you would turn from your sin. You would recognize who Christ is, and you would bend the knee. If you're here this morning and you're uninterested and you don't see how this relates to you or what it has to do with you, again, I would implore you to think deeply about these things, to recognize Christ for who he is.
This is how Christ, this is how God demonstrates his love for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that this morning? If you are a believer, if you profess Christ, if you say, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, because on the last day Jesus himself says that many will come in my name and, and, say, and say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. And they will be cast into hell and darkness forever, apart from Christ. Do you believe that this morning? That Christ, what he's done for you as a man coming to save you from your sin. Because if you do, the outflowing of that is obedience and conformity to Christ. To respond rightly to God, to honor him with your life. This is your assurance of faith. The great hymn, it says, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. The hymns are so beautiful because they give us this musical understanding of, of how we ought to praise God and our life would reflect Him. You can look down through history of the, the history of the church and these beautiful, these great giants of faith who give us this example which they have gotten from Christ. Take my life and let it be consecrated that you would, you would take your life and you would Offer it up to God, and you would say, Lord, I'm a slave to you. What Chris has been talking about. Lord, I'm a slave. I am a slave of Christ. Every moment, every day would be devoted to the ceaseless praise of the one who has saved me. If you recognize this, if this is, if this is your anthem, if this is your prayer, it should cause you to live zealously for Christ, to walk in obedience to the word. This leads me to my final point. Jesus is our perfect example. Why was it necessary that he became man to make an atonement? Because only a man could make an atonement. But he walks as our perfect example. We have documentation. We have, we have the Bible. We have the, we have the gospel accounts of Jesus and how he treated those around him and, and how he walked on this earth. In his time on, on earth, he modeled perfect Christian living, perfectly modeling submission to the Father as we ought. In all things, he is our example. Christ wept. He endured hardship. hardship, Suffered. Had difficulties in this world. So that he would be able to sympathize with us, yes. But that he would also leave behind an example for his followers. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he was constantly pointing back to Scripture. Upon the bedrock of truth that is found in it. When the lies and deceptions of the evil one come, Jesus points us back to Scripture. This is the word of the living God who created the universe. This is our guide. This is our manual. This is how we walk through life in perfect conformity. We might please and honor him. Thus, we never have an outlet in which it is acceptable to sin. There is no loophole we can hide. Scripture is fully sufficient for everything we need in life and godliness. It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, and righteousness. There's no loophole in, in anything where you could just hide and say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know I should have done that. Oh, man, oh, clumsy me. No, you never have an outlet. You never have an excuse. Scripture is fully sufficient to live a perfect and 
holy life unto God. I'll end with this story, but when Jonathan Edwards was 18, again, Jonathan Edwards being the greatest American theologian, intellect, recognized by pagans, scholars, pagan scholars as the greatest intellect, the greatest mind America has ever produced. That's pretty astonishing. You know, he lived just before the Revolutionary War. He was the, he was the president of um, Yale, I believe, or Princeton, Yale or Princeton. But when he was 18 years old, some of you are almost 18 years old, when he was 18 years old, he sat down and he composed what he called a list of his resolutions. Basically, these resolutions were just goals that he committed himself to for the rest of his life. And I'm just so intrigued and fascinated and encouraged by the 63rd. He wrote so many. Again, 63 is not even the last one. There's more after that. His 63rd resolution says this. On the summation that there was ever just to be one individual in the world at any time who was properly a complete Christian, in all respects of a right stamp, having Christianity always shining in its true luster and appearing excellent and lovely, from whatever part and under whatever character viewed, resolved to act just as I would if I strove with all of my might to be that one. Who would live life, who should live in my time. January 14th, 1723. Some of you may be thinking, well, isn't that kind of self-pious? Isn't that kind of self-righteous? You'd be the, really the one? You'd be the one? <laughs> well, I'd ask you, what, would you want to be the most unrighteous person in your generation? Would you want to be in the 50%, the 50th percentile? No, that you would strive, this is a good resolution, that you would strive to be the most holy person. Not in a pious, self-righteous way. This is not what he's trying to get at. But that if only one person could please the Lord in that sense and be in fellowship with God, that you would strive with all of your might to be that one. Jonathan Edwards so carefully was in step with the Word of God, in step with the Spirit of God, working through his conscience, that you would be the most righteous man on the, or woman on the face of the planet. And again, when Jonathan Edwards read his Bible and he read in Leviticus and in 1 Peter, you shall be holy for I am holy, he believed it. And he took it to heart. And he made these resolutions that he would press into holiness. And who do you think he modeled this perfect holiness? Who do you think he's looking to in these things? He's looking to Christ, His perfect holiness. He calls us to the same standard. He believed it. He committed in his spirit to live life in this way. And only the Lord Jesus, the holy standard of perfection, is the model for this. My dear young people, commit your lives to the King of Heaven. Trust in his atonement and model your lives after his example. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we come before you weak and, and frail. Lord, we are humbled and we understand our position. Lord, we recognize who we are in light of who you are and what you, what you have done for us, Lord. And, and Lord, we rejoice in this. We rejoice that you would come and you would save sinners like us who are so undeserving. Lord, we thank you for the atonement you have given us. Lord, we thank you for the example you have set for us that we would 
love you and honor you in all things, and we could actually look to your example and what you have done in life. Lord, we pray for, I pray for these young people. I pray that those who do not know you, Lord, would be touched and you would open their eyes to the truth of their sin, Lord, to the truth of the holiness of you and of the one who sent you. Lord, I pray now as we, as we go forth that you would be with us, that you'd be with us in our week, that we would live holy lives pleasing to you in all respects, that we would press into Christian discipline. And then we pray, Lord, that you would come and that we would see your face and we would fellowship with you forever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.